hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. All right, welcome back to the next episode of BC Law's Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely, joined by Jill Jacobson. And today, we're really, really fortunate to be joined by Angela Verpal. Uh, she is a law school strategy coach and creator of Law School Master Plan and OCI Boot Camp. Ten years out of law school and amazed by the fact that how to do well in law school still felt like a mystery to basically all one else, just as it had for her when she started law school. Angela decided to pour all of her expertise into a program to show law students how to strategically get the grades to start a career on their own terms. Uh, so, Angela, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me. I'm pumped for this conversation. Awesome. Uh, well, I, I know that's just a, a brief intro, but why don't you, you tell us and our listeners just about yourself, whatever you'd like to share, a little bit about your business, and uh, take it away. Yeah. So when I, I guess starting from law school graduation, I was a judicial clerk, and then I worked for a law firm in IP litigation, and then I went into sort of human rights immigration law. And kind of through this whole process, especially the last few years, I was trying to find kind of the next thing that I was interested in and was challenging to me. And so around that time, I started creating YouTube videos. And these YouTube videos were kind of my way to express all of the frustration that I had with the, the legal industry. And just when you start off as a new lawyer, no one tells you anything. There's no real roadmap. And this expectation of perfection that comes with no resources and really no guidance. And so I started making these videos. And what I realized was that the questions that I was getting from just engagement and comments were things that were more basic. So things like, I'm interested in law school. What do I need to know? Or what is a lawyer? What does a lawyer do? And um, how do I know if this is for me? And so what I realized kind of, I guess about a year and a half in, was that I was loving answering these questions. and, and some some of them, I would just go off and write two, three, four paragraphs just because there was so much I had to say on these topics because of how often these cycles repeat themselves and the unknowns continue. And there's no, it didn't feel like to me that there was really any movement to try to change them. And so what I decided was that I was going to go into the coaching world. And so that was kind of a new world for me that I, this is the beginning of 2020. So right before the pandemic started and I had just started finding out that, that this was a thing. And so of course, everybody knows about LSAT programs and everybody knows about bar prep programs, but I wasn't even that familiar with sort of law school prep programs at that time. And I definitely did not take one when I was uh, heading into law school. And so basically what I did was I sort of opened it up to my community and just said, Hey guys, anything you want coaching on just it's, open season, let me know. And so people join everywhere from, I think I might want to go to law school to I'm heading into law school to I'm in law school and I don't know what I'm doing to, I just graduated law school. I'm a new lawyer and I need help. And I wound up coaching sort of that entire spectrum. And what I found was that probably about 97% of the people who were coming to me for help were people heading into law school. And so that's when I realized, okay, the real need and the real confusion and sort of mystery here is this uh, piece right before law school starts. Oh, very good. Yeah, no, I, I certainly remember when I was, you know, uh, applying and re really through every step of the assembly line here, you know, I was in the trenches, the, the videos, I... <laughs> Oh gosh, I think there's like a like seven sage was one of them. Like there's all these people right. that are, you know, in the game trying to turn out. Long there's certainly a need. I mean, there absolutely is because there's you know you're coming into this process and there's just 
you know, it feels like sort of the marketing of all of it, but then there's also sort of like how things really work, like what you really need to keep in mind. Right. And that's, that's, that's great. I mean, there's, there's definitely a, definitely a need there. Yeah. I think, you know, just as much advice as we're given, whether it's helpful or not getting into law school, once we get into law school, we're faced with even more. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is what is advice that should be heeded and what's advice that should perhaps be disregarded. And, you know, how do you tell the difference between that when your face was an overwhelming sort of litany of opinions. Um, so I guess what's one piece of advice that every law student should hear in your opinion as someone who's both heard and given so much of it? So there's quite a bit. I mean, I, I literally had to make dozens of videos on this just to kind of get it all out there. But I think the main one, kind of what a lot of this boils down to, is having a strategy plan before you begin. Because I see what happens a lot, and this also happened to me, is you kind of, a lot of us go into law school thinking that this is going to be fairly similar to what we've experienced before. So a lot of people continue on to law school because they've done so well in school up to that point, right? High school, college, grad school, a lot of people come in having the experience of getting straight A's their entire lives. And so the, there's an expectation that, well, law school is also school, so I'll, that will just continue and there shouldn't be any difference in how I approach it or the results that I see. And then of course, a lot of people just get so burned that first semester because they just didn't know. They didn't know how they needed to study. They didn't know how early they needed to begin. Um, they didn't know what strategies worked and what didn't. And so a lot of people basically start off in a hole and then try to climb their way out of it or give up entirely, which is what I've also seen because they assume it's it's them. It's not sort of the process that they followed. And so having that rock solid strategy when you begin is sort of the sort of bedrock of everything that I teach. Because if you can go in knowing how this thing works and how to approach it, then you're not only going to position yourself for higher grades, but you're just going to feel more confident and more calm um, and really feel like you can do this thing, even though it's for most of us, one of the most difficult things that we'll ever do. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of bad advice that's out there that you'll hear. You know, you hear like, oh, well, you know, I'm good at arguing, so maybe I'd be good at law school. Or, uh, you know, oh, well, yeah. you know, just, you know, lawyers make a lot of money, so I guess I'll do you know, just all this sort of, you know, imprecise, uh, you know, info that's, that's out there. What, what do you think is, you know, maybe a piece of, like, very commonly given, but, you know, maybe, like, really bad advice that, that students tend to, to fall into? Is there anything to watch out for? Yes. Yeah, so my favorite piece of terrible advice is do what works for you. And I hate this piece of advice. Like it's given so often. And I have to admit, like before I actually got into this like coaching experience, I gave it a lot too, because it's a very easy piece of advice to give. It's, you know, like every, every, there's this concept that everybody learns differently and everybody has different, you know, uh, learning styles. And so you should do what works for you. And the problem with that piece of advice, especially for incoming 1Ls, is we have no idea what works well for us. Like we've met most of us, when we were in undergrad, we didn't really have to have a study strategy to get good grades. Like a lot of us could rely on mental horsepower and kind of cramming at the last minute. And, and you had multiple exams and quizzes and papers that could sort of you know, you could bomb one and still do really well. And because law school is graded so differently, because you have the competition of the curve, 
Um, and because law school grades are so powerful, a lot of people, when they come in, this they hear this piece of advice and it assumes that we should already know, which I think is a really harmful, unfortunately, um, message that's being sent because then you feel like something's wrong with you if you don't know how to study or you don't know how your brain works best. And so, and so, yeah, I just, I hear this a lot and it makes me cringe every single time. <laughs> yeah. That, that is surely something that I've heard, uh, prior to law school and time and time again in law school. I think, you know, jumping off of that, a lot of our listeners are incoming 1Ls or 1Ls. And as you mentioned, law school exams can be a very elusive concept. And given that a lot of our listeners are incoming 1Ls or 1Ls, I'm curious to hear, um, you know, your advice for 1L exams, a sort of an overview of what is a law school exam, right? Most There are quite a few people listening to this who have never taken one before um, and really have no idea what to expect until it's the day of the exam and they're walking in there. I know it's so it's so funny because just hearing you say that my like my mind and my person goes back to one L year and, and for you guys too, I'm sure. It's it's like going back to that place for a lot of people is something there's a lot of resistance around because it is a really tough period. You don't know what's happening. It's your first, you know, your first round of final exams that really count. And so it can it can be very, very terrifying. So in answer to your question, one of there, there are a lot of pieces, of course, to having a really solid final exam grade strategy because it's not just – I guess I'll kind of answer this in two parts. So one of the things that's sort of heartbreaking to hear, and I hear it very often, is you know people that will come to me after their first semester – um, and say, I knew the law. I knew the law so well, and I didn't get anywhere close to the grade I expected. What happened? And so one of the first things I think that's really important to understand is writing a law school exam answer is a separate skill than just internalizing the material. And that's something that I think a lot of us are not accustomed to because, again, in college or grad school, you could just learn the material and that would be enough. There wasn't kind of this other... A piece of having this ability to write, write quickly, write well, and get what you needed on the page. And so the second part of that, you know, kind of to your question is, what do these exams look like? Well, the most infamous and the most common type of exam is the issue spotter, right? So you have some version of a fact pattern. It could be three paragraphs. It could be 14 pages, single spaced. And basically, a lot of people are doing a lot of things to each other, causing a lot of problems. And then at the bottom, your professor might have a really open-ended question, something like, describe all the claims and defenses of all the parties. And so basically, what's happening is your professor in that scenario is not telling you exactly what to analyze. It's your job to go through the fact pattern, spot different issues, and, and analyze them and, and identify kind of what legal issues are present and how a court would would rule on them. And, and so basically when we go into these type of final exams, the most important thing to remember, and I would say that my number one piece of advice, um, especially to one else is avoid trying to find the right answer. Mm -hmm. That is the number one thing that I see law students in general, but one else in particular sort of fall into because we've been so conditioned throughout our whole academic careers to, to know the right answer, learn the right answer, and then of course regurgitate the right answer. And in law school, it works completely differently. And actually on a law school exam, the entire purpose of the exam is to get you to look at issues from both sides. And so what I'll see happen a lot is people will start the exam, they'll notice something in the fact pattern, like, oh, I, I spotted battery or, oh, I spotted negligence. And then 
they go into right answer mode and their brain basically goes into tunnel vision and only makes arguments that support the issue that they think they found, the conclusion or the right answer that they that they think um, corresponds to that issue. And when you do that, what happens is you leave so many points on the table because now you're not addressing any of the counter arguments. So any arguments about why that battery didn't occur, why somebody didn't act with intent or why the contact wasn't harmful or offensive. And so the best thing that you can do for yourself when you walk into the exam, and I would, I would do this all the time, when you spot an issue, you can literally like say it out louder to yourself, there is no right answer, argument, counter argument. There is no right answer, argument, counter argument. That way you get into, you sort of break the hypnosis of wanting to analyze an issue, get it quote unquote right, um, and then move on to the next one. And it sort of forces you to look through it, look through the lens of one party and the other party. And that's how you get so many more points than kind of going into right answer mode. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I just wanted to you know follow up on that. I mean, you're right. You know, you do get these, particularly in one, you know, these chaotic issue spars. I mean, I think back to Civ Pro, and it's like uh, that that final there was a question, something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, there's like uh, you know these guys on a plane that's over a state line that came from international waters, <laughs> and one's an executive of a Delaware company. They're just you know the, the smattering of of, of uh, you know. Of, topics from the, the class and you know you're right that you know I, I think a lot of people have the experience of like oh well, you know i knew the law but you know the, the my, my grade the, the the sort of demonstration of that isn't isn't quite commensurate with with what i thought and so you're you know you're writing these answers and you know one expression you hear is, is like outline dumping like you know our school like our school you know most of the time you know you have your outline with you you know there's that instinct that's there to you know just oh well i have all this information let me just put it all in there so when you're writing and you're trying to maybe write perhaps a concise answer um, you know, is there a particular voice you should be trying to write with or, you know, what should you be thinking and trying to refine, you know, the, the law that you kind of walk in already sort of knowing? Yeah. So when sort of, and you guys know this and probably have even talked about it on this mm -hmm. podcast, but the most foundational structure to a final exam answer is the Iraq formula, right? Issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. And this is a, this is a great starting point because it forces you to be incredibly formulaic in what you are saying. And so when you begin, that's where you want to start because that keeps you much more concise than, than kind of what we were talking about earlier, which is, oh my gosh, I saw this thing. This is the answer. They're definitely liable. Let me tell you all the reasons why they're liable. And then it becomes sort of like a word vomit because there's no real structure to the analysis. It's just, I saw this and I saw this and I saw this and I saw this. And then you just start <laughs> writing and your professor, it's a lot harder for your professor to follow you because you kind of also have to think of it from their perspective where they're grading you know 100 of these things maybe in a week and they're um when they print these things out a lot of the time it's just this word dump this long mm. sea of black text and so when you can break your answer into really visible pieces, it helps the professor allot you points. And so every professor has a little bit of a different sort of take on what they like to see, whether they like issue statements or rule statements, or they like the conclusion first or last and those kind of things. And those are important. But when you think about structuring your answer, you want to make sure that that first rule statement, to your point, is as concise as you can make it. And then you only bring in situation-specific rules if the facts trigger them. And so so when you think about your issue statement and your rule statement, make it short. And then when you get into the analysis, that's when you can start to 
to bring in these things where you're combining facts plus rules to make arguments. And so think of it that way, where it's not like, I'm just going to dump everything we've ever learned about negligence. So three pages later, now I'm getting into my analysis. No, the analysis is where you get all the points. And so save those more nuanced rules or situation-specific rules to attach to facts where you can actually craft those arguments in the analysis. Yeah, mm. definitely. It's such a radically different way to write in law school. I feel like prior to law school, if you were a great writer, you had so much flourish, you know, your syntax was varied. You these fantastical words and then you get here and you're being told the opposite that actually as concise and simple as you can convey the thought is is better and it's it's I think a bit jarring for a lot of people to realize yeah, and it's interesting because, especially when you're talking about final exams, these things are not beautiful because usually they're timed, right? You have three to four hours to take an exam. Mm -hmm. And so it would be very different if we had a week or a month. And so when you're in there, the whole goal is to get points. And so the faster you can get things on, the faster and more concise that you can get things on the page, the more points you can accumulate. And so a, being concise, but also B, really baby stepping your professor through it is going to help them award you those points. Because I think a lot of the time what happens is sort of in this kind of brain dump scenario, it's, and I hate to say this, but like, it's not that you didn't have the argument in there, or it's not that you didn't have the rule statement in there, but it was buried beneath, you know, like 17 lines of something else. And your professor may not have seen it or might have thought you didn't, you know, voice it in a, in a compelling way. And so, yes, the, the, the more logical, uh, you can be in terms of like a B a plus B equals C, and that becomes your argument, the easier it's going to be on your professor to, to really award you those points, which I'll also say, by the way. It's interesting because I've had STEM majors um, in my program and they've come to me and like their greatest fear starting out, out in law school was I haven't written something in four years minimum, <laughs> right? And so I, I'm just terrified of these things. I don't know how to write. I haven't practiced in a long time. And I have seen them, I have seen them blow it out of the water because of just the very simplistic, very logical progression of their writing. And so like if talking about legal research and writing might be a little bit of a different conversation, but specifically with final exams, if you can make it really formulate for your professor, that's going to work really well for you. Awesome. Uh, so, you know, you spoke about how, you know, one of the biggest, you know, maybe misconceptions or, you know, bad pieces of advice that students have in preparing is, you know, doing what works for them. What do you think is the biggest misconception students have about the exams themselves? So that's an interesting question. So the biggest misconception, I, I feel like maybe there's not even a misconception. I think it's more of a black box. I'm, I'm just trying to think back to one L year for me. I don't know that I had any thoughts on what it was going to be like other than I just didn't know what it was going to be like. And so I think it, so to the extent that if anybody's listening and hasn't done a practice problem yet, like definitely break the ice and go ahead and do one. If not to like put aside the fact that how well you do and how well you think you know the law and just do one, because when you rip off that bandaid, it takes away that fear factor, mm -hmm. which is really, really powerful. And then in terms of the thing I think that it get that trips a lot of people up when they're in the exam room is time management. Mm -hmm. And I, this is a very sort of broad umbrella under which a lot of different strategies fall. But one of the biggest ones, of course, like when you get your exam and you're allotting time and your professor should either ahead of time or on the exam tell you how many, what percentage or how many points each question is going to be so that you can also break that up time-wise. 
Um, but once you then take the next step and you actually start analyzing these questions, being really aware of starting with low hanging fruit. So what is the fact pattern screaming at me to talk about and making sure that you're allotting your time based on how prevalent these issues are in the fact pattern? Because what I'll see a lot happen is people will start in the fact pattern, they'll spot a relatively small issue, and then they will just go nuts on it. And so it'll just be like three pages of analysis on on a, an argument that they totally can make and probably get points for, but that argument should have been 90 seconds, not 25 minutes. And so that's the hardest thing that, that really only comes with practice because those are game time decisions you're making in the room. But just to keep in the back of your mind, we want low hanging fruit. So very like start with the biggest arguments that your professor is very clearly trying to get you to talk about and then kind of go down the funnel in terms of, you know, sort of medium present issues then smaller issues then more nuanced um, arguments so that you can make sure that you're maximizing points on the things that the professor has maximized points for on their rubric. Awesome. Definitely. This yeah. is also helpful. I, I would love to say that final exams are for the pure pursuit of legal knowledge, but the reality is, is they matter so much and they're so nerve inducing because um, they're largely determinative of the jobs that we end up getting. So switching gears a little bit, um, I know you do a lot of job coaching as well as academic success coaching. So I would love to hear a little bit about your law firm recruiting experience when you were in school and how that informs how you help your students today. Yeah. So when I went through OCI as a 2L, it was it was really an interesting time because uh, the global financial crisis had just happened. So this was August of 2008. Am I? No, I'm lying. Sorry. So this was August of 2009. So that's right. Because what had happened was the 2L, so the year ahead of us, had went through OCI in August of, like July, August of 2008. And the global financial crisis was just happening, but the whole economy hadn't collapsed yet. So what happened was that group got recruited at the same levels as law firms had been recruiting for decades. And then because they had those big classes still, once like everything really went to hell in like September and October, a lot of those people got not no offered over the summer, which up to that point had never happened before. And just huge percentages of classes were not getting permanent offers. Wait, just so and can I ask Angela, so they, so these people went, so now it's like, you know, it's, it's, everything, you know, the bottom falls out in 2008. You, they went to the summer program in 2009 and they just didn't have them back or did the summer programs get axed by and large altogether? No. So a lot of those summer programs happened and they still had the associates come mm -hmm. to their, you know, six to 12 to 14 weeks. And then it was, you know, 13% offers or 15% offers or 25% offers. And, and it was wild. Like I'm sure you guys follow above the law, but those were just the posts happening over and over and over. Okay. This firm came back with their summer numbers and it was, you know, less than 50% and that kind of thing. Um, and then a lot of people also got deferred. So some of the larger firms offered like $90,000 to not start. And so can you please not come and then stay like take a year, do some kind of legal work and come back. So that was another way that some firms handled it. So when we started OCI, our tool year, so July, August of 2009, all of the law firms were very aware that the economy had totally plummeted and legal work had dried up and they weren't looking for the first time. My understanding was in decades, they weren't looking for for these really large summer classes. And so when OCI started, it was very 
well known that it was going to be incredibly competitive. And so I went to a law school that was not a top ranked law school. It was not like a T10, T14, T20, anything like that. And so traditionally, I think to be competitive for OCI, you needed to be in the top third of your class, maybe the top quarter of the class. And then this time around, it was very clear that it was going to be more like top 10%, top 5% to even to even get a shot. And so I remember that there was sort of conflicting advice that was given to us, and you guys can probably relate, but career services would basically tell us, make sure that you're only applying to a small number of law firms that you would actually potentially accept with so that you can make sure that there are positions available for everyone. And I remember at the time thinking, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Is that going to be my strategy? Are you crazy? Like nobody knows how many law firms are hiring, much less how many associates, you know, they may have hired, you know, 35 in summers before and now they're hiring two. So yeah, that was, that was not something that I adopted at all. In fact, I went all the way in the other direction and I applied to everybody, everybody who came to campus, I applied to. And so I wound up doing, I I think it was 28 interviews in four days. So wow. it was seven interviews per day, just going back to back to back to back <laughs> to back. And what happened through that process was that I just became a machine. Like I knew exactly what I was going to say when I got in that room. I knew exactly what they were going to ask. I knew how to formulate my answers to get like smiles and head nods. And so, you know, like the, I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar with this too, but like the little anecdotes that you're going to craft, you know, those were just down solid. And so, a couple of things that came out of that process were the different strategies that I coach my students around. And one of them is that law firms tend to ask exactly the same questions across the board. Like there really isn't a lot of difference. And so if you have the time and desire and energy, you can absolutely craft answers to these questions that you're not necessarily going to say verbatim in the room, but 85% of what's coming out of your mouth is probably going to show up in that interview. And it just makes you feel so much more confident because you can kind of anticipate what's happening. The other thing that's really common among law firms is what they're looking for in junior associates. Because when they come to campus, they know you don't have any legal skills. They know that you're not a lawyer yet. Um, and so what they value, things like attention to detail and hard work and, you know, like team collaboration and things like that are very common across the board. And so you can hype those things up about yourself, knowing that law firms value that. Uh, awesome. Uh, and a couple questions to follow up on that. One, just, you know, briefly, you know, you're, uh, you're telling stories of, you know, 2008. I, don't, I certainly don't want to jinx anything, but <laughs> I think we all, you know, have a, a sense of the news and, you know, the, some of the uncertainties that they're in our, do you have a sense at all of, uh, you know, if there's, if there's any of that maybe on the horizon or, you know, people at these firms that have maybe been there for a long time, they get Nancy, like, is there any barometer on that at all? So it's funny you say that because right before this conversation, I just did a quick Google search to see like where <laughs> everybody was. And yeah, I think there's like a little bit of trepidation, like could we maybe be headed into a recession? But that also happened on, honestly in 2020, right? With, with COVID and um, the pandemic starting. And even then, so I... I don't want to make light of it. Like any time that the national economy has a bit of a question mark over it, like of course law firms are paying attention to see, you know, well, how how many should how many jobs should we cut and how many summer associates should we have? But the other thing that I think works in favor of sort of the the one L's and two L's going through and three L's going through OCI now is 
the law firms totally freaked out in 2008. And so once they got that news, they cut summer classes big time. And what happened three, four, five years down the road is that they had these huge holes in their associate classes. So they didn't have fourth years and they didn't have fifth years. Um, and those are when you are most profitable as an associate. And so I think a lot of law firms most law firms have already existed through that. And so there is this understanding that even if the economy is not doing particularly well in this moment, that we also need to make sure we're planning for the long term so that we don't get caught flat footed and we can't take on casework or deal work four or five years down the road because we haven't recruited enough associates. And so even if that's kind of on the horizon, I would encourage people to to not really change your strategy much. I'm a I'm a as you guys now know, I'm a huge fan of really applying widely and broadly, not only because it gives you more opportunities for positions, but it also helps you practice. And so even if you're not that committed to it, well, I guess for two reasons. One, even if you don't think you would necessarily accept a job with a law firm, you get to practice in real time with real lawyers and you get different things coming at you. And so you get some experience there. And two, the other thing is that you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, although I know this is incredibly common. We think that we know what law firm we want to go to, but we're operating on such little information. Like we might be operating on something we heard from somebody who has a cousin or a dad or, or an uncle who works somewhere. I've heard terrible things about law firms and then I've gone in summer there and loved it and vice versa. And so not to say that you, we're all making decisions as best as we can, but understanding that we're making them on on very little information. And so the most exposure that you can give yourself, at, you know, at, at the very least a 20 minute interview is going to give you just a little bit more to to be able to make um, an informed decision for yourself. Sure. Yep. I remember hearing my dad's cousin's dog worked at X firm and hated <laughs> yeah. it. So therefore, you really shouldn't consider applying there. Uh, I also <laughs> exactly. wanted to ask, uh, Angela. So, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit, you know, generally what firms are looking for. You know, we're all, you know, very inexperienced. We're all, you know, students. We're, you know, is sort of looking for, uh, you know, attention to detail. Some of the other things you mentioned, but you know, one of the other things that happens, and I think, you know, we're sort of, you know, we're in law school, and so you see this. We're around it. You know, you talk to people where, where there is this, um, you know, when, when it comes to interview time, like the things people are doing and preparing, and the rumors that you hear. The, you, know, so, you know, you just think about some of the things people do. It's like, oh, well, it's just a conversation. So I'm going to go in. I'm going to vibe it's with organic. them. I should I'm be gonna, my authentic. Yeah, self. I'm going to vibe. The vibes will be good. And then you have other people, very Type A, on the other end of the spectrum, who literally wrote out every single word they're going to say and they're going to memorize it. And I'm just curious, like maybe from the from the uh, the firm's perspective, you know, when they're going into these things. I mean, I, I've been in interviews where you know they have like a rubric and they're like, well, we're going to see, do you like teamwork and other things. Some places it just really is a discussion. Like at the end of the day, to the extent you have you know awareness of it, when they go in the back room and they decide, okay, who are we going to make offers to? What is the, you know separating the truth from the fiction? Like what really is important at the end of the day to 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 have come through in all of this? Really good question. So a few things. So the first the first one I will say is that especially when you're in an OCI environment showing that you know what firm you're interviewing with. Mm -hmm. Because this is something I did a terrible job of, and a lot of people tend to, because if, especially if you're gonna do 28 interviews in seven days or in four days, it's gonna be really difficult to keep everybody straight and to understand what sets people apart. And so that's not something that most of us inherently know unless we have lawyers in our family. And it's also something really difficult to decipher because a lot of the law firms use the same marketing language, right? And they talk about the same things that they value and the same initiatives and the same client service and all of that. And so if you can even come up with, you know, one to three specific details that you've pulled from their about page on their website or that you've Googled about them or an, um, a niche practice area that you 
can claim to have some awareness of that, that even that little bit will set you apart because most people do not know anything about the law firm that they are walking into. So, so one thing is awareness and, you know, and I just horror stories about that at the very base level, know if the law firm you're interviewing with does litigation or corporate work <laughs> or both, depending on what you're going to say you're interested in. And because I didn't know that some firms do just one or just the other or both. I didn't even know that much. And so there are litigation boutiques out there. There, There's some, but fewer sort of corporate boutiques out there. And then big law firms tend to be full service. And so if you are going to claim to be interested in a practice area like IP or labor and employment, um, or even just general business litigation, do a quick Google search and make sure that that law firm actually practices that type of law. So that's one is like knowing something, just bare bones, something about the law firm. The second one, it feels very fluffy, but it's completely true, which is being excited to work for this firm. Because having been in these interviews on the other side of the table, it is so clear who is there just because you are a number on their list and who's there because they are pumped to be there. And especially when you're coming at it from, you're, you know, you're a law student, we don't really have like any substantive skills at this point, the biggest thing that you can offer them is, is energy and work ethic. That really is like, I want to work here. I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to contribute to your team. I can't wait to hit the ground running and learn and become an expert. And like that kind of language they love to hear because what we're thinking on the other side of the table is, oh, great. I can delegate some work to this person and they're going to do a good job and I'm not going to have to double check them. And, and I can, and I can start taking on bigger tasks. And so that's kind of the mentality of, um, and it's as simple as like smiling, nodding, using language like I'm excited and I can't wait to start and, and I'm really looking forward to, you know, being a member of this team. The, that kind of language goes a long way because a lot of people will walk in there and kind of give their spiel and then walk out. And there's no indication that you actually want to work here rather than just get a job, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I think some of the language that you're using is really interesting in that you say that you claim to be interested in, right? And I think one of the misconceptions I had is academia is so insular. When you're a 1L, you likely have no idea what you want to do. Yet most firms expect you to act with conviction as though you have your whole career charted out in front of you. And I think at times people are uncomfortable and that it feels a little disingenuous. Would you speak a little to I mean, A, is that right? Do they expect you to know with conviction or do they want you to communicate that you do? And B, sort of how do you walk that line when you likely don't really feel that way? Really good question. So one of the questions that we actually cover in the program is this, because it's going to come up, if not 100% of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time, which is what kind of law do you want to practice? And specifically as a 1L, but also as a 2L and 3L, we have no idea. If you have any idea at all, uh, you, I was going to say you're ahead of the curve, but also you probably don't necessarily want to practice that type of law because you've probably also never practiced it before. And, and that's just the truth. Like we, we, you can't know what you don't know. And so the way that I like to approach this question is kind of in three parts. And I'm going to see if I can sort of remember them for you. And so it's really this broad, narrow, broad, and I actually think I have a video on this on YouTube, I think. Um, but basically the way that we want to approach this is, I'm still learning. So, so broad, narrow, broad. I'm still learning 
broad is I'm still learning about all, all the different types of practice areas, and I'm really excited to continue learning. I'm Then you go narrow. So I'm leaning one way or the other. I'm leaning litigation because fill in the blank, or I'm leaning corporate because fill in the blank. If there is anything that we can point to as to why you're leaning that way. So it could be as simple as I'm leaning litigation because my understanding is that litigation requires really well-developed oral persuasive skills and, and written persuasive skills. And that's something that I've really enjoyed in legal research and writing, or I'm leaning, this is going to be a terrible example because I was not a corporate lawyer, but I'm leaning <laughs> corporate because I've just started having conversations with different attorneys in the transactional space. And it seems like there's a real high when you're able to complete a, a project that means a lot for the outcome of a business. Like we we want, and that thing, by the way, you can use in every single interview. You don't have to come up with a new one. But like, if we can get a little bit of a because, why we're leaning litigation or why we're leaning transactional, that's gonna, that's gonna bring so much credibility to what it is you're saying. Um, and then we go broad again. And then you say, but I am really interested to see what practice areas the, I'd say you guys, but the practice areas at the firm where they're really growing or it really needs associate help. Because then what you're saying is, hey, I'm giving you what you're looking for, which is like a little bit of a lean, but just so you know, I'm basically a hard worker who will do anything you guys need me to. And so when you can, you're basically communicating all three of those pieces where you've done your homework, you've thought it through. You're not saying, I don't know, which is the worst thing you can say to that question. Um, and you're also not saying the second worst thing, which is litigation and then not having any reason for for saying that no, you should say you do litigation because you know looks good on law and order exactly exactly which i'm not i'm not pretending that i had this planned out when i went through my 2l oci yeah. it's just that like i've seen now being on the other side of the table seeing people saying that it's so cringy but yeah and then you're also letting them know like hey i don't know necessarily what not without saying this of course like we don't know what they're hiring for and we don't know what their needs are and we don't know how many associates they want in each practice group and so you're letting them know like i'm also flexible and i'm willing to learn and is you know whatever you guys need i'm willing to to adapt. And so that's my favorite way to answer that question. Awesome. Uh, no, this is great. Um, I also wanted to ask, you know, you go through this process and, you know, myself, you know, going to law school, you know, being around other people who've, you know, gone through it, uh, you know, it, it can feel like at times there are certain people who are, you know, maybe more like, uh, I guess you could say like OCI sort of like prototypes. Like there are people who, you know, I don't know, did, I don't know, uh, they were teach for America or they did this or, oh, you know, my dad's a lawyer and I want, you know, they sort of very cookie cutter, you know, interface very well with this process. And there are other people who are, I mean, look, we're in law school. We're all pretty sharp. I mean, we all sort of, you know, got our way uh, along who, you know, g you know, go and have, you know, I, I make up a number, you know, 30 screeners and then all of a sudden it doesn't go well. And then other people uh, had half that number, but got twice as many off. It was just these, uh, this inequity that it feels like can come up in this process. Is there, I guess, more to that? Like, like how does that go? Because I think we're all familiar with people for whom, you know, it seems like it works out really well. And then other people who it seems like are, you know, maybe just as sharp, just as impressive. And it doesn't like, how, how does it, uh, how does it tend to go? Like, why does it seem like there's that differentiation? Yes. So, so really broad question. And I, 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 it's a great question. I'm not going to claim to know kind of how every law firm is making its decisions, but I can tell you sort of generalities mm -hmm. about law firms and lawyers. And so a couple of the things that come to mind, one is, you know, when you're trying to play a little bit of the comparison game with like, why did it go well for this person and not this person? A few things to keep in mind. One, law firms as a general rule are very traditional and very 
um, I was going to say close-minded. They're not very innovative. And so they've done, for like most of these law firms, they've done OCI the same way for hundreds of years, not that many, but like dozens and (laughs) decades and decades of years. And so when they go into this process, there's this under there, it's almost sort of like a system that feeds itself because the people who then become lawyers at these law firms then turn around and interview people for these positions. And so there's this consistency of like type of person and background and words coming out of their mouth and language that they're looking for. Um, and I wouldn't even claim to say that it's, it's conscious or it's intentional. It's just that like you're interviewing yourself is basically what starts to happen. And you're like, oh, you sound a lot like me at your age. And oh, you did a lot of the same things I did. That seems like a really great fit. And it's because this like this, this cycle keeps perpetuating itself. Um, so I think that's a lot of it. I think the other piece too is there's sort of this cynical view that, um, which I'm not saying is inaccurate, but that law firms are looking for cogs in a wheel, right? So they're looking for people who will go in, work really hard, um, do a lot of the grunt work. And then if they, if they stick around great, and if they don't, that's okay too, because we've already budgeted for attrition to be really high years one through three and years three through five. And so that's a, that's a piece of it too, is like, if you, if you kind of fit into this understanding of what we already have and have had for years of a junior associate, then my guess is you're probably going to do really well here because we've had thousands of people just like you um, come through here, which is a a horrible overgeneralization. I think the other thing that tends to happen is (laughs) coming. So just so you guys know, when when lawyers are sent to do these interviews, there's no interview prep. They don't tell us what to look for or what questions to ask or like what skill sets. Like we're heading in there and we're not professional interviewers. None of these lawyers <laughs> are. And so it's really difficult to try to sort of find, you know, and I, I guess this goes back to my first point of like differences in views or differences in backgrounds, because all you're doing is operating from the experiences and the worldview that you already have. And again, so this cycle gets perpetuated. And then I guess the last thing I will say is that when they're, when a lot of these big law firms are interviewing in terms of like playing this comparison game, a lot, I was going to say a lot, but probably all of the, of the, the cuts that get made first are by grades. And so if they're looking at, at grade percentage and it's like, oh, you're, you know, you're in the top 5% versus the top 10 versus the top 25, there are, there are firms that will straight up make cuts based on that. I don't know if that works the same way for you guys, but in a lot of law schools it will. And so that can also happen, which is like, oh, I have this amazing experience and I ha- I've worked before law school and I speak seven languages and like a lot matter. of the criteria yeah. that they might be looking at is very, very shallow. And so those are some of the things, um, unfortunately, that can that can happen and that continue to happen. Yep. I think people put a lot of stock in OCI, rightfully so. Um, But I'm curious, you know, there are a lot of people for whom OCI doesn't work out, but they would be great attorneys in that environment. And some people who easily land OCI jobs and then they realize over the summer that this is not for them. So I guess. What are the options if OCI doesn't work out? Is is the big law door closed forever? Or how do you advise your students who are still interested in pursuing that sort of career? Yeah, so if you're specifically, I guess to break it down to two pieces. So when we talk about OCI, you're completely right. That is a very small subsection of jobs. And the vast majority of law students graduating law schools across the country are not going to go into big law. And so 
OCI specifically kind of tailors to bigger law firms and sometimes federal agencies and things like that. But there are also there are also sort of systematic um, interview processes that are not just OCI. And so some of them, if, like we had second round OCI, third round OCI for some more public interest or smaller law firms. You also have job fairs. You also have diversity fairs. So there are some things in place if you're not necessarily interested in big law, but you still want to try some of these more um, sort of, yeah, like structured industry um, interview processes. And then if we get out of even like what law schools have set up for us or what law firms have set up for us, then we're in the world of personal connections, which is terrifying for a lot <laughs> of people who hear that, myself included, because even like even even at this point in my life, um, people who have worked for you know 10, 20, 30 years are terrified of of the word networking. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what it means. There's no real process in place for how to do it. Um, but I recently saw a uh, a poll that a lawyer did on on LinkedIn asking like, hey guys, how many of you got your first job out of law school via grades? And how many of you got your first job where the employer didn't even ask for a transcript, didn't even look at grades? And it was something like 85-15 of people who did not get their first job out of law school through grades. So if that is you and you either OCI didn't work out for you or just you, you feel a lot more sort of comfortable or excited about the idea of building relationships versus just sort of the academic side, there the vast majority of jobs out there you're going to get through this sort of like non-traditional funnel, um, which is a totally different conversation around like informational interviews and cold reach outs and like being really scrappy and resourceful. So yes, there are a lot of strategies out there that you can use. And then if we're talking specifically in terms of big law um, and you don't get a job through 1LOCI and you don't get a job in big law through 2LOCI, there are a, always a few firms who are looking for three L's. But in my experience, here's the other thing to keep in mind too, that I don't want to like make any claims that there's, you know, like nine, 95% of firms are also looking for this, but usually what happens after that 2L summer or some people are, are going to say no. And so it's it's not the worst idea in the world if you're still interested in in a big law firm and like maybe your 1L grades or your 2L grades didn't qualify you, but now they do, to absolutely reach out to firms that you're interested in in order to do that. Informational interviews would be even better where you're reaching out to them cold or, or alumni cold. Um, then the other thing to keep in mind is it's not, I don't want to say it's common, but I definitely went to law school with friends of mine who entered into big law three, four years down the road. In those situations, again, it's not super common, but in those situations, they had a very specific skill set. So the, the friend I'm thinking about uh, was a labor and employment lawyer. There was a boom in the economy and they were just hiring everyone they could get their hands on. And so, yeah, we're heading into a recession, a potential recession now, but the economy goes in ebbs and flows. And so when, if you're out of law school and there's a boom, throw your hat in the ring, because at that point, a lot of these firms need bodies and you're going to be a really strong candidate regardless of what grades you got in law school. Awesome. Well, Angela, we really appreciate your time today. That's all the questions that we had. Uh, so we really appreciate you coming to talk to us about, you know, I, I think honestly, what are I hate to put a number on it, but it feels like almost, you know, all of what we walk around worrying about and thinking about, it's either exams or jobs. It's, <laughs> it tends to be kind of one or the other. Um, so, you know, obviously important things to, to be talking about. And you gave us some really great insights on uh, on some of the issues that really 
really keep the students up at night. So uh, we really appreciate your time today. It was great to chat. Uh, this has been the BC Law Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely with Jill Jacobson. We've been talking to Angela over Paul. And uh, until next time, that'll do for this one. Thank you for watching.